0: Said we have been considering um, Philippians chapter 3, Paul's language, for the last number of weeks. And Paul is just explicit. He said, my desire held up against everything else in life is to know God. In fact, I consider everything garbage for the surpassing worth of knowing Him. You guys been with us on this journey? Yeah, let's read a little bit more. Philippians chapter 3, he, verse 10, it says this, I want to know Christ to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Listen to this, verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained all this. Like I know him. If anybody knows Christ, it's Paul. It's not that I've obtained all this, he says, or I've already arrived at my goal to know him, but I press on to take hold of that which for Christ has taken hold of me. Meaning, Christ's desire is for me to know him. So if he's grabbed hold of my life to that end, I'm gonna grab hold of his life to that end. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal. What's the goal? Thank you, Nikki. What's the goal? To know him. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul is pressing on to win the prize. The prize is to know him. And I want to consider this morning that to know him to pursue the prize, to pursue the goal, is your greatest act of spiritual warfare. It's not just some romantic notion for the spiritual elite. It's what we've all been called to. And if there's any sense of warfare in your life, we find the weapon of warfare here in Philippians chapter three. an intimacy or communion with him is your greatest weapon in the battlefield of your mind. Let's pray one more time. Jesus, thank you for your word. God, would you illuminate it to our hearts? Would you awaken us to the depths of the power of your word, the power for it to transform our hearts, to transform our lives? Holy Spirit, would you quicken all of our hearts in this room and online to know you to know you more to love you more than we did when we walked in this room Lord would you take us to deep places in your heart today in Jesus mighty name and we all said together amen alright you guys in this with me let's go let's go let me say that again to know him to know Him is your greatest act of spiritual warfare. Thank you, Sarah. To know Him is your greatest act of spiritual warfare. Intimacy with God or communion with Him is your greatest weapon in the battlefield of your mind. How many of you have considered your thought life to be a battleground? How many of you wrestle in your mind? Yeah, it's, 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 it's what makes us human. There are things that go through our mind that lead us down paths that we don't necessarily want to go down. And sometimes we're losing that battle, even though we don't want to go down it. Even though we don't want to go down that trail of thinking, we can't help but go down it. It's not because you just have a loose grip on your mind. It's because there's a war. the battlefield isn't necessarily in this ethereal space. The battlefield's in here. And if you're human, you know that. How many have made mistakes in life? And how many of those mistakes have been intentional? Some, but I would argue that most of them are not. That simply means that there's times in our minds and in our lives that we're not actually winning the war that we've been called to win. Spiritual warfare. And we're going to enter into this story, this conversation on spiritual warfare by going all the way back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And many of us, most of us would know the journey of God and his people in that they were enslaved to the Egyptians for 400 years. God's promised people, his children, the ones that he gave incredible promises to, he said, you will be enslaved by Egypt for 400 years. And lo and behold, they were enslaved brutally. By Pharaoh for 400 years, and then one day God meets this man named Moses in the backside of the wilderness, and He speaks to him. He reveals Himself to him to Moses through a burning bush. Many of us would know this story, right? God calls Moses, and He says, "I've heard the cry of my people. I've heard their oppression. I've seen it. They've cried out, and now I'm coming to rescue them." And Moses, I'm going to use you. And so God sends Moses. To Pharaoh, and Moses says over and over, God says, let my people go. Let my people go. And we know that the plagues come, and then Pharaoh finally relents, and he lets his people go. And we have this mysterious, intriguing scripture, Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. They're they're released from slavery in Egypt. They're on their way. They haven't hit the Red Sea yet. And this was at Exodus chapter 13, verse 17 says, it says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Now, this is God's mercy. What he's essentially saying, he's saying to them this, They're not gonna be able to handle it. So I'm gonna keep them from it. Many of us want God to talk to us this way, don't we? God, why are you letting me go through this? Why couldn't you take me another way so that I didn't have to go through this journey? Well, let me just tell you, there are infinite number of ways in your life in which God has done this, you're just not aware of it. This is God's mercy. He kept them from war because he knew that they would not be able to handle the thought of war and they would go right back to slavery. If we only knew the things that God has kept us from having to deal with, can we just praise him in this moment? Thank you, for, thank you God, for the things that I didn't know that you kept me from. This is his mercy, and many of us never give him praise for this. Life is hard, but but it's not as hard as it could be. So thank you, God. But on the other hand, there are wars that he makes us face. So logic comes to play here. If there are wars that he keeps us from, but we're still in war at times, we can conclude then that there are wars that he allows us to face. And we see this in Judges chapter 3. This just two generations of leadership later. We have Moses' leadership in Exodus. Moses dies. Joshua comes up in leadership. And Joshua takes the children of God into the promise of God, the promised land, into Canaan. And then Joshua dies. And then here we have this next generation. Judges chapter 3. It says, these are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. God left them in war. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, there we go, and the Hivites living in Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal, Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left there to test the Israelites, listen, to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their ancestors through Moses. We see in these three generations of Israel that there are times when God kept them from war, and we see that there are times where God kept them in war. And there are times that God keeps us from war, and there are other times that we just admitted that God keeps us. In war. This is the sovereignty of God, and this book, in the entirety of it, is about spiritual warfare. And so much of the New Testament, particularly Paul's writing, is about how to handle spiritual warfare. It is a manual on spiritual warfare. So it's easy to conclude then, through all of this, that we are at war. Would you agree? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, if you disagree. Paul says this For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. What's the goal? to know God, arguments that set themselves up against knowing God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Paul is saying that we have strongholds. What are strongholds? They are military fortresses. They're safe places, they're fortified places that an army hides in and from there goes out to do war what a stronghold is. They don't war in the stronghold. The stronghold is a safe place for them to hide for when it comes time to go to war. Strongholds. And then Paul describes what strongholds are in our life. These safe places that an army can hide to go to war. He says that they're arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. So the, the enemy's weapons of war are ideas, ideas that have lies embedded in them, lies about who God is, lies about who we are in him. And so we have these strongholds that are in our minds that, that encase or keep safe the lies that we believe about God and about who we are in God. The war that we're in is not the war that Israel was in, the threat of physical harm. The war we're in is a battlefield in our minds. This is what Paul is saying. The weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. The weapons we fight against and the weapons we fight with are ideas. Ideas about who he is and ideas about who we are in him. So Paul's goal again I will repeat this ad nauseum. Paul's goal is to know God. And the enemy of your life, the devil, his goal is this, to keep you from knowing God. Or to keep you in a distorted view of God. Because that's all he's got. All he has is ideas. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. How did he first begin his assault on humanity? Did God really say? He inserted an idea about who God was. This is his weapon of warfare, ideas. He made Adam and Eve question their knowledge of God. He made them question whether or not they actually knew his intentions towards them. This is all he's got. It caused them to cast doubt on his character and what he actually had in mind for them. So Paul says, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. So we hop back into Judges chapter three. And it says that God left them at war to teach them warfare. He threw them in the deep end not knowing how to swim so that they can learn how to swim. It's the mother bird who kicks the bird out of the nest knowing that they're going to learn how to fly on the way down. This is what God is saying about his people. He left them at war to teach them warfare because they didn't have any experience with it. So at first glance, it would seem like God wanted to teach them hand-to-hand combat. Or like, teach them a new militaristic strategy. But we know from reading this story that their strength as a nation was never in the size or the strength or the ability of their military. The nations in the land in Canaan, all the ones described here, were always known to be bigger and stronger and faster, more experienced, As a military, militaristic nation, Israel's strength was in who their God was and in His mighty hand. That's where their strength came from. So why is God now so concerned that they learn warfare? Is His mood changing? Have they ticked them off enough that he's like, I'm going to go a different way with you guys now. I'm going to build you into a bunch of Navy SEALs so that you can accomplish the mission that I have for you. Is this what's happening with God? Is his strategy changing about how he wants them to walk it out now? But the question that we have to consider in these two paradigms of God's nature is what changed? What changed between him keeping them from war because they couldn't handle it to now, I want you to stay in war so that you can learn warfare. What changed in those three generations? Well, here's what did change not his mood, not his strategy. What changed was that God, Yahweh, revealed himself to his people. They grew in the knowledge of Yahweh over three generations. At Egypt, they did not know God. They didn't know who he was. All they knew was this wild prophet of a man named Moses met God through a burning bush. And now he's coming to say, that God who I heard my ancestors knew wants to deliver me from slavery. That's all they knew of who God was. And so God says, listen, because you don't know who I am, I'm not going to make you face war. Because you're weak. You've been slaves. You're malnourished. All you know how to make is bricks. You don't know how to go to war and you still don't know who I am, so I'm gonna keep you from having to go into warfare. But for generations, and particularly through the wilderness, God made a point over and over and over to show his nature and his character. They come up to a Red Sea because God didn't take them to war. God parts the Red Sea. He shows his nature, his mighty hand. They come up to bitter water. He tells them to put a stick in it. It turns sweet. God shows them his provision. God gives them manna when they're hungry. He's declaring that I am your sustenance. He starts describing his nature through his covenant, through his law. He's showing who he is to his people. This is what he does. He makes covenant with them in the wilderness. He reveals his name, his nature, his character, his intention, his heart, and his power. So he prepared their hearts for 40 years in the wilderness by revealing his nature and his covenant. And now you have a generation that knows Yahweh. Before they didn't know of him, but now they know him intimately. A covenant people And when God says, now that you know who I am, you may enter the promised land. This was the difference between God keeping them from war and now saying, I want to leave you in war to teach you how to fight. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, we see this, what we now know of as the Ten Commandments where Moses writes about these commandments. But at the beginning of the 10 commandments, God says this. He says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, the land of slavery. And then he goes through the 10 commandments. Before I'm asking you to obey me through the law, I want you to know who I am and what I did for you. He went first, he displayed his greatness and his goodness and his heart towards them. And that was his end of the covenant. And he says, now I want you to walk in your side of the covenant, which is adherence to the law. But first, before I'm asking you to do anything, I've made, it, made sure that you know who I am. He reminded them of who he is and what he did first. This is the nature of our God. And then following Deuteronomy chapter five, you get Deuteronomy six, seven, and eight and beyond where Moses in those passages are giving a a summation of the commandments of God. He's saying essentially keep these commands and everything will go according to plan in the land. You just play your part and God will be who he promised to be in the land. And there was an underlying commandment in all of them. And it was simply this remember who brought you up out of the lands of slavery. Remember and don't forget, over and over and over again in these passages, just remember who I am. You have these verses in Deuteronomy chapter six called the Shema, it's what the whole nation of Israel was built around. We're gonna read it together, verse four, in chapter six it says, hear O Israel, The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your forehead. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. All these commands, Why? so that they do not forget the one whose strong hand took them out of slavery. That was the entire point. Just remember who I am. Don't take their gods, don't entertain their cultures, don't take them as slaves. Remember who's a jealous God. Remember that you should have no other gods before me. Remember to keep the Sabbath, it's holy. Remember that the reason I'm calling you to do all these things, because I am God and I am Yahweh. In verse 10 in chapter six, it says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities. You did not build houses filled with all kinds of good things. You did not provide wells. You did not dig and vineyards and olive groves. You did not plant. Then, When you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's not just saying, don't forget. He's saying, remember. And when he's saying, remember, it's not like my wife who sends me to the grocery store and says, don't forget to get eggs. When God says, remember, he's saying, be mindful of me in everything that you do. On your wrist, on your forehead, talk about it when you wake up in the morning, talk about it before you go to bed. At the dinner table, talk about everything that Yahweh has done. Be mindful of me. Don't forget who brought you out of the land of slavery. And here was God's promise in it all. There are nations that are larger, there are nations that are stronger, and there are nations that are more experienced with war, but I will drive them out before you. What God is saying here is simply this. I am your greatest weapon of warfare. All you have to do is remember who your God is and what he's done for you, and I will drive these nations out with a mighty hand. So we see in Judges chapter three that these nations are still there, that God didn't drive them out, and that God left them in the midst of war to teach them warfare. But God, what happened to you promising that you were going to drive these nations out? Well, God's promise was contingent on the other side of the covenant, that they don't forget God, that they remember who he is. So when God left them at war to teach them warfare, his desire wasn't for them to learn new tactics for the battlefield. He wasn't testing their war strategy, he was testing their memory. He was letting them experience what it was like to forget who their God was. Where the victory actually came from. So, he's not a vindictive God. There was a reason he did this. It was so that they could turn back to where their help actually came from. He left them at war to teach them warfare, but the warfare wasn't how good they were with swords. Their warfare was how well they remembered who their God was. That's why he left them there because they forgot how mighty Yahweh was. So they started entertaining marriages and cultural pacts and and things that crept in that caused them to worship other gods. They forgot. They forgot where their victory came from. All they had to do was remember. To have this word in Hebrew, the the word remember, it's zikar, Z-A-K-A-R. And again, it's, it's not just don't forget, it's be mindful of, fill your mind with God. That's why we see in Deuteronomy 6, 7, 8, 9, he's talking about raising their kids with God in mind. Forehead, wrist, doorpost, dinner table, wake up, go to sleep, Yahweh on your mind. Don't forget, zakar. Yahweh showed them his nature and his goodness, and he made a point of it for years all they had to do to assure victory was to be mindful of him. All the ways he came through, because if he did it then, why wouldn't he do it again? So although they were at physical war, their greatest weapon of warfare was the knowledge of God. Let me say that again. Although they were at physical war, Their greatest weapon of warfare was their knowledge of God. Literally, their greatest weapon of warfare was their memory. So this word, remember in Hebrew, zakar, I told you, Hebrew is made up of of symbols, of pictures, or pictographs. So every letter actually is is a picture or a word picture, and we have three syllables, three letters in zakar, R, or zayin, kaf, and resh. And the first one here is zayin. There we go. We got it. In zayin, the word picture here, it's literally a weapon. The first letter of the word remember is a weapon, meaning that your remembrance of God is your weapon. But in ancient Hebrew, this pictograph was actually a plow. There's a picture of a plow and the word picture here is to cut like a plow cuts through the grounds. The second letter here, the second pictograph is kaf. And in ancient Hebrew, it was a palm that was bent, that was curved like this. So you have zayin, which is a plow. You have calf, which is a palm that is bent like this. Something that is inferring that it, it is moldable or shapeable. And the last letter is resh, it means head, or first, or top, or beginning, it's a human head. So the word picture that we get in Zikar is this, remembering God is being shaped in our minds like a plow carves new lines in a field. As you remember him, there are new lines, new pathways in your mind that are being shaped like a plow shapes a field. This is ancient Hebrew for neuroplasticity. New neural pathways shaped by the knowledge of God. This is the brilliance of ancient Hebrew. What God is saying is that my nation, my people will be shaped in their knowledge of who I am. Who they would be shaped by was who he was. My people are gonna look like me. They're gonna look like me as they remember me because when they remember me, their minds, their entire being will be shaped by the knowledge of me. It wasn't just about adherence to the law. It was about how adherence to the law would shape their minds so they would become the people that could walk into the freedom and blessing God desired. And it all boiled down to one thing. Can you guess what it is? Knowing God He left them at war so they could remember where their help actually came from. And we jump back to Philippians chapter 3 when Paul says the greatest treasure of my life is to know him. What is Paul inferring? He's inferring that I am shaped by the knowledge of God. My mind is transformed by the knowledge of God. My body is shaped, the neurons in my physical body are restructured and reformed as I consider who he is. That's why he says in Romans chapter 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's a car. remember it changes your neurology. And so Paul is saying in Corinthians, The way we wage war is to have our minds shaped in the knowledge of God. I'm excited. Some of you are yawning. This is great stuff. (laughs) We are at war. Paul says the weapon of your warfare is an idea's. Those ideas are shaped by not concepts of God. They're shaped by intimacy with God, knowing him. Second Corinthians chapter 10 again. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does because we're not very good at it. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, safe places in our thinking that the enemy hides with ideas about who God is and about who we are in him. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Why is God so concerned that we know him? so that we can win at war. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The war in your mind is over truth. And we are at war and we're not gonna win until we engage with the weapon that he has given us. The knowledge of him. Because we cannot demolish lies if we're not acquainted with the truth. Can you see now why God is so concerned about us knowing Him? Because it's the only chance that we have to win the war. So Paul says, we must take captive every thought. That's how we tear down strongholds. We need to consider every thought that goes through our mind, and we need to ask the question, "Who do you come from? The one who wants to steal kill and destroy, or the one who wants to bring life and life and abundantly. This is militaristic language. Paul is saying, take captive like a prisoner of war that has crossed into enemy territory. What are you doing here? What's your intention in this place? Why are you in my mind? Are you the one who is for me? Or are you the one who is against me? Remember, the enemy deals in ideas, ideas about God and ideas about who we are in him. Take every thought captive. This is intense language again. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about Paul calling us to train ourselves like professional athletes to go into strict training so that we might not miss out on the prize, to know him. Many of us are lackadaisical about our walk with God. And Paul's saying here, like he said in 1 Corinthians 9, take every thought captive because we are at war. Jesus says, John 8, 31, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. He says, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What is the truth setting us free from? Sin? No, his blood does that. What is truth setting us free from? Lies strongholds, ideas about who he is and about who we are in him. The truth is going to set us free. But we cannot be set free from the lie if it's not extinguished by the truth. If you hold to my teachings, then you are my disciple. Then you will know the truth because you hold to my teachings and that truth will be your freedom. Powerful. So anybody want the truth this morning? Colossians chapter two, and we're about to celebrate because this is good news. Colossians chapter two, verse 13, and I want you to prep yourself. I want you to prep yourself, your energy, your face, your demeanor, your affect for what we're about to read. I'm giving you warning so you don't have to hear me whine about how quiet you are afterwards. (laughs) This is incredible. Listen, Listen to this. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, When you were dead in your sins, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins. You are forgiven which means the enemy can no longer harass you with a lie that you have to pay for your sins or that you're under condemnation or that you should be insane, insane, in shame because of the failure that you had. No, it's a lie. Are you here for my good or my destruction? Well, God says that I'm completely forgiven. So if anything comes in the way of what he says, I can tear it down because it's against the knowledge of him. This is good news. He forgave all our sins. Listen, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. You don't have to pay for your sin. You don't have to beat yourself up anymore. You don't have to live inferior to his call because you made some mistakes. He redeemed everything. You're no longer in slavery because you have a debt to pay to the one who owns you. No, he purchased your life, paid the ransom, took your debt upon himself on the cross. That's the truth. That's the good news. And if anything comes up in the way of that, you tear it down like the lie that it is. This is the war we're in over the truth. I'm preaching this morning. This is what I was born for. So let's go. (laughs) Verse 15, listen to what he says, Paul. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You know what this is? This is the gospel. This is the good news. The word gospel is a Greek word. It didn't first start in the church. The gospel, the good news, is euangelion, and it's the weirdest word in the Greek. Maybe euangelion, I'm not sure. One of those two. And it, it was this beautiful expression of victory. Rome was a giant empire. There were wars fighting all over the place. They didn't have Twitter, they didn't have CNN, whatever news you subscribe to. They didn't have the app on their phone. They didn't even have newspapers. But what they did have was riders on horses. And a victory would be won thousands of miles away. And a horse, a a horse, a rider on a horse would come with good news. You know what that good news was? We won. It's over. Go back to living your lives. You're free. That threat is gone. That's the good news. That's what Paul is saying here. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. The victory has been won. The enemy is not actually the threat he presents himself to be. He was made a fool of on the cross. He's been defeated. We just sang it. There's two songs that I wish Sam sang, and he sang them both. He didn't plan those. The enemy's been defeated. We just declared it. Death couldn't hold Jesus down. And then how great is our God? Let's remember how great he is. I wish I could sing. I'm not going to do it. (laughs) If you are in Jesus, the only power the devil has is in your agreement with him when you believe his lies, subscribe to his ideas. So we know that Jesus has won. We know that the victory has been won on the cross. We know that our sin is somehow dealt with on the cross. We know that that happened, I believe in him, God raised him from the dead, but is that really relevant for what I'm walking through right now? Yes, yeah, true, objectively, God did it, I believe in it, my salvation is there, but what about what I did yesterday? Isn't God a little angry at me for that? Okay, you can have that truth, but I'm gonna insert this little lie right here. He's still after us. He doesn't want us to walk in freedom and the blessing of what he's called us to. Do you see how he works? Do you see the war that we're in? This is good news and this is why the proclamation of the gospel is so important. Every time you battle up here It's the good news that you need. You don't need a new tip, you don't need a new trick. You need the good news. You need that rider on a horse that comes through. Mel Gibson in The Patriot. When they're running back in in retreat and he grabs the flag and he gets on the horse, he says, no, victory's ahead. That's what we need. Mel Gibson running through our mind with the gospel. Why well, you did that? Passion of the Christ. That's what we need. That's what you need. That's why we proclaim the good news. It's not just for the people who haven't heard it. It's for the people that need to hear it. And if you're at war in your mind, you need to hear the good news. You're no longer under any threat. In fact that threat has been made a fool of. So here's some more good news. We're not called to know him through the law anymore. God's promises are not contingent in our obedience to a law. See, in the Old Testament, that God left them at war, didn't drive them out because they didn't, they didn't obey. What Jesus said, that's an inferior covenant. I need to come show them who I am in person, in flesh, and then I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, and I'm going to write that law on their hearts. They're going to know me not through just the law and their adherence to it, they're gonna know me through who I am in them. They're gonna know me through the word and the Holy Spirit bringing the word to life in us. This is good news. We don't have to know him through the law anymore. We're in a new and greater covenant contingent on one thing. Jesus sinless, spotless life, not ours. Let's get that in our heads. It's never about how good you are, so it's not gonna be about how good you are. He took our debt upon himself. I'll say it again, he was the ransom for our lives. Now we can know God in Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit whose primary job it is is to testify to us in our hearts who Jesus is. It's his job. You want to know him? Okay, here's who he is. Anybody consider this good news? Anybody feel like they're being set free by the truth? Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about what we know of as the fruits of the Spirit. And I want you to simply understand the fruits of the Spirit. What are they? Love, joy. Joy. Gen- <laughs> Love, joy, peace, patience, kind gentleness, self-control, long-suffering. What I miss? For everybody that's on long goodness, all the, all the beautiful things. My Sunday school teacher is really upset with me right now. <laughs> fruits of the Spirit. I want you to understand it this way, this morning. The fruits of the Spirit describe a life that has been shaped by the knowledge of God. Yeah, it's a wow. Love. the the fruit of a life that has been shaped by the knowledge of God, joy. The fruit of a life that has been shaped by that plow in our minds, the knowledge of God, peace. The fruit of a life that has been shaped by the knowledge of God, the fruit of the spirit, the one in you who testifies to the knowledge of God. This is good news. These aren't just emotional states, love, joy, peace, but a life shaped by those fruits. I mean, what does a life look like that has been administered to by one who is love or peace? I'll make drastically different decisions with my life when I'm at peace than when I'm anxious, when I'm loving and and not hating, when I'm patient. That's what the fruit of a life who acknowledges and knows God looks like. One that's been shaped by love, shaped by peace. What about your relationships as you're shaped by the knowledge of God? Who doesn't wanna be around a peaceful person or a loving person? What problems in the world would be solved by a life that emits the fruit of the Spirit? It all comes back to knowing Him. Like, my God what would my life look like if I made all my decisions from a state of joy? That's his desire for us. So we're talking about knowing God. And when Paul says, I wanna know God, he's not just talking about mental assent. He's not just talking about the law because he knew God through the law. He's talking about intimacy with God. He's talking about experiencing God. Like we experienced him in worship today. Like we experience His provision, and we experience His kindness. We experience His forgiveness. We're experiencing God, not just ideas about God. And a lot of how we talk about that in the church is in this word called intimacy. or of intimacy with God. And a lot of us are thrown off by that because it's reserved for certain camps or for certain types of people. But this is what Paul is talking about. He's talking about intimacy with God. And if you read the Psalms, my goodness, David was talking about intimacy with God. My heart yearns for you. Like this is desire for God. That's what Paul was talking about become intimate with God. I want to be close with him. We can know him here, which is great, but inferior to his desire. He's calling us to know him here, to know him intimately, like a friend no longer call you slaves or servants, I call you friends. Holy Spirit is a comforter and a counselor. So Jesus has already won. The victory is over. The fight is over, I should say. The victory has been won. So our fight then isn't to fight for victory. Our fight then is to live in victory. And we live in victory on one thing, the knowledge of Him. This is why Paul's language in Philippians 3 is the greatest weapon of spiritual warfare you can have in your life. The pursuit of the knowledge of God. So we come back to the question, why is God leaving us at war? (laughs) Why are there things in your mind that you can't overcome? Why are there things in your world that you keep tripping up over? God, why don't you just snap your finger and save me? I'm your child. If we feel like we're losing the war, he's only training us to stand in victory. He's showing us how to build our life on the truth. Because the truth is no longer elusive. It's no longer evading us. We don't have to travel to the ends of the earth like Indiana Jones, to go find the truth. The truth is here, it's in Christ, and it's the testimony of Christ in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's the truth. That's the truth that will set you free. He's training us in the truth. And so when Paul says, I go into strict training so that I might not miss out on the prize after preaching about the truth, He's saying, I train my mind like an athlete or one at war in the truth. I'm obsessed about the truth. I will not entertain anything other than the truth of God. Nothing that passes my eyes will proclaim anything other than him. I will not let anything into my heart, into my life, into my family that the truth of God doesn't live in. This is not religiosity. This is warfare. This is freedom. God gave the law so that they could live in blessing. And God says, okay, you can't follow the law. I'll do one greater. I'll send my law into your heart. All you have to do is pursue the knowledge of me and everything that I'm giving you and you will walk in freedom. Who wants freedom? We're peddlers of the truth. We're peddlers of freedom. We got to live in it like it's true. Going into strict training in the truth and everybody said amen. 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 Can we close your eyes for a moment? Holy Spirit, would you just come now, presence of God. When you ask this question, Today, everybody here and online, when you ask this of God, what lies have I been believing about who you are? What lies have I been believing about why I can't follow you? What lies have I been believing or entertaining about why I can't surrender to you? What lies have I been believing about who I am in you? About my worth? About my capabilities? Holy Spirit, come minister. Bring every lie to the light. And now say to God, Would you replace that lie with the truth? We are more than conquerors. We stand on the side of victory. Nothing can hold down or hold back a child of God. The victory has already been won. You've already been set free. Paul says... It's for freedom's sake that you've been set free. So stand firm then and don't give in again to the yoke of slavery. which is you. And so if you're in this room today or online, and you want to, like me, surrender to the truth, just stay seated, stay where you are. just want you to lift your hands, two hands to the sky. This is us, God, your people surrendering to the truth. And this is the truth. We have been raised with Christ. We're with you, Jesus. When we were dead in our sins, you made us alive with Christ. You forgave all of our sins. You canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. You took it away, you nailed it to the cross. And you disarmed the powers and the authorities and you made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We thank you, God. For the truth, and it sets us free. You can put your hands down. And just before we respond in worship, I want to get practical with you today. I want to get as practical as Paul gets with this, okay? So that you're not walking out of this room today from watching this message with a lie about you not knowing how to walk this out. Colossians chapter three, the next chapter, Paul says this, listen clearly. Put it on the screen, Colossians chapter three, verse five. I'm sorry, verse one. This is the Shema of the new covenant. This is what it looks like to remember God and to walk in his ways. Colossians three, one. You got it? nope okay it says since then you have been raised with christ set your heart on things above where christ is if your desire is to know him then set your heart where he is on things above seated at the right hand of god and then he says set your minds on things above not on earthly things For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul is saying, set your heart on things above. This is how you walk out your remembrance of God. Christ is seated there. So make your affections rise to where he is. Set your desires on things above. Paul is saying, stop following your heart and start telling your heart where to go. You have conflicting desires in your life. If you're human, you know that's true. Paul is saying, stop entertaining the inferior ones or the ones that come in the way of your desire for God. Set your heart, nail it to the place where Christ is seated. And when conflicting desires come up in your life that block you from your desire for God, Deal with them accordingly. And then he says, Set your thoughts, not just your heart, not just your desires, not to your affections, your thought, your thought life. Go into strict training. Steer your thoughts. In Christ, you have control over your thoughts. Steer your thoughts, train them. And as you steer your thoughts according to the knowledge of God, your body will start to change. You know the manifestation that comes over you when you're anxious or depressed? That will follow the shift of neurology in your brain. Your body will follow your mind. Set your heart on things above. Set your mind on things above. This is practical. And then look what he says in verse five put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. He's saying, put them to death. If your desire is to know him, then put these things to death. Because tolerance is the enemy of truth. Don't tolerate the things that God has saved you from and released you from. And in verse eight, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, listen, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of the Creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to be at peace and be thankful if anybody needs a manual about how to walk in the truth it's Colossians chapter 3 the word of God is life walk in it let the message of Christ, the gospel, dwell among you richly and teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts and whatever you do, whether word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. My friends, these are your weapons of warfare. No excuses anymore. The victory is yours. Stop living beneath it. Amen. Amen. Let's worship.